This is Inglorious Trexpert, Darren Docterman. And from me and everybody at the Trexperts, we wish you a lovely holiday season and hope that you have time to spend it with your friends and family and with our wonderful swag from our various websites and our sister podcasts, Inglorious Trexperts and 430 Movie. At the Inglorious Trexperts site, that's ingloriousTrexperts.com, you can find a whole bunch of swag with our Trexperts logos and famous uh, quotes from the show and T-shirts and sweatshirts and hoodies and spatulas. No, there's no spatulas. But uh, you can get tote bags and uh, coffee mugs, all that sort of swag that uh, you've come to uh, expect from a high-quality podcast. So take a look on ingloriousTrexperts.com and also look at 430movie.com. That's 430movie.com. Hey, this is Mark A. Altman. This is Darren Doctorman, and we are the Inglorious Trexperts. See, I thought it was a classic femme fatale. Just so much fun. I like that Shakespearean lace in your acting. I said, Gene, what do you want from this character? I want you to just take the character and make it your own. <laughs> <laughs> I had a good time on the film. On day one, the movie was already $15 million over budget. We started this movie without an ending. That's like painting yourself into a corner. I don't think we've ever had a Star Trek oh, captain on our true. show. Being, as you said, number one of the, on the call sheet, it is a producer's position if you're going to take it seriously. I was so glad they didn't cast me as Lorca. <laughs> <laughs> you famously wrote that script in 12 days. On one level, I wrote the script. And on another level, the story was written by everybody and sure. his brother. New episodes every Saturday, wherever you listen to podcasts, or download the Electric Now app. Keep on trekking. Ingloriously, of course. Inglorious Trexperts, the only podcast for fans with a life, is available every Friday, wherever you listen to podcasts, and on the free Electric Now app. Download it today. If you felt a great disturbance in the force, you're not wrong. My new book, Secrets of the Force, is now available in hardcover, digital, and audio from St. Martin's Press. And check out my other great oral histories with Ed Gross of Star Trek, The 50-Year Mission. So say we all, the complete oral history of Battlestar Galactica. And nobody does it better, the complete oral history of James Bond and Spymania. All available in hardcover, paperback, digital, and audio wherever you buy your books. Next time on Star Trek The Next Generation. Can any of you stay alive? The crews challenged once again by the dreaded cues. We have offered you a gift beyond all other gifts. Tempting Commander Riker with extraordinary power. Are you strong enough to refuse to use that power? The game. Worf! That becomes a deadly confrontation. And Star Trek, the next generation. This is Peter Holmstrom. I'm a screenwriter for the sci-fi TV show Pandora, as well as author of The Center Seat, 55 Years of Star Trek, a companion book to the hit documentary series by the Nacelle Company in stores right now.
And I'm Lisa Clank. I wrote for Star Trek Deep Space Nine and Star Trek Voyager. And I have a short story in the first issue of Star Trek Explorer magazine. And this is the Trexperts Briefing Room, where industry professionals curate audio commentaries with the creators, creatives, and diehard fans of the Star Trek franchise. Let us consider the Q. Omnipotent beings, aliens with a passion for observing human evolution, or a single being with a burning, undying love for Jean-Luc Picard. In, this, in its initial con- inception, the Q followed up a long tradition of pitting humanity against quasi-god things. Everything from Trelane to the Metrons to V'ger attempted to answer the unanswerable. How can we define humanity in contrast to near perfection? Gene Roddenberry and company hoped to do this again with the next generation and the creation of Q, brought to life by the extremely dynamic actor, John Delancey. And while the character was a success amongst fans, they soon discovered that once you've defeated God, coming up with new storylines was a little difficult. The character, which was meant to be a recurring villain throughout season one, was reduced to just one other appearance beyond Encounter at Farpoint. That one episode is the one we're here to talk about today, Hyde and Q, the one with the creepy French soldiers. Joining us today on the show is returning guest, editor for Titan Publishing, and currently the fiction editor for Star Trek Explorer magazine, which just released an issue featuring two Q-centric short stories, one written by Lisa Klink. All that is to say, uh, Jonathan Wilkins is back in the briefing room. Thanks for being here. Oh, it's, look, it's great to be back. There's no, uh, there's no other briefing room I'd rather be in than this one. This is the best <laughs> one, easily. <laughs> Now, before we get into the episode, I would love to ask, uh, how did you first develop your love of Q? Um, he, uh, there's something about Q that I think is quite, um, you know, he he's a great adversary. He's, you know, like you say, he's 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 a god um, pitted against um, Picard, and it's he's a great match. The two actors. Um, Patrick Stewart and John Delancey, I think they, they spring off each other really well. Um, I mean, my my love of Q um, really stems back to watching Encounter at Farpoint back uh, when it was first shown on on British television, and just thinking, "Wow, this guy's a this guy's a really interesting actor." Um, uh, you know, he's really, um, you know, he's he's almost snake-like which i really like which obviously in this we see kind of him in a snake-like form but you know even when he's even in his human form he's got quite a serpent-like um manner which uh really stuck with me and it's nice to have a villain that you can't defeat with brute force i think that's the other thing like you know the borg you can eventually blow them up and you know flow up a cube or whatever but but q you have to outthink him which is really cool it's fantastic. Well, again, listeners out there, we are watching season one, episode 10 of The Next Generation, Hide and Q, directed by Cliff Boole and written by Gene Roddenberry and C.J. Holden, which we will talk more about as we get into the episode. But first, let's go down the syndication sizzle reel. We have in this episode, one Q with a passion for Napoleonic French military uniforms, two near sexual encounters, nine musket wielding aliens, one glass of lemonade. One extremely smug Commander Riker with Q-like powers, one penalty box, two bayonet stabbings, and one depressed Riker wondering, why can't I just do it all? Vulcan salutes have to go to Geordi LaForge for wishing his blindness away, and despite the fact that he should arguably have no conception of what human eyes deem as superficially pleasing, instantly clocks Tasha Yards being the hottest person in the room. Faith Minton for inspiring a generation of Star Trek fans who have the hots for clean on women. 
Denise Crosby for hitting on Picard in undoubtedly a Gene Roddenberry wish fulfillment moment, and John Delancey for once again bringing his A-game to Star Trek, a warp 5.5 of an episode. But man, does it hit those nostalgia notes. In three, two, one, and play. Captain's log, Listeners out there, if you are hearing or watching this episode, you can tell from the Captain's Log that Marina Sirtis is not in this episode, which is a bit of a mystery because even as late as the revised shooting draft, she is included in the episode and is part of the away team that goes down to the planet. Um, the reason for her uh, disappearance is a bit of a mystery. Marina Sirtis was uh, paranoid throughout the whole first season that she was going to get fired. And this was one of the reasons for that is because she was written out of uh, not one, but three episodes. And uh, for this episode, her lines were given to various other characters, which explains why Data is incredibly shocked later on, later in the episode, <laughs> despite the fact that he should have no emotions. Um could have just been a simple money issue. They wanted to save a few dollars on hair and makeup. I don't know, but uh, the mystery will will probably never be solved at this point. Lisa, I have to imagine for your short story, that was a Q-centric episode and new Star Trek Explorer magazine that you went back and uh, watched a lot of these early Q episodes. Um, yes, yeah, so I watched actually all of the Next Generation Q episodes. Nice. Um, I mean, once I knew I was going to write a Q story, I knew that I wanted to do it with the next generation cast because I think that his dynamic with Picard was the most interesting. Uh, so, yeah, I went back and watched all of these and thoroughly enjoyed them all over again. Fantastic. It's funny because at this point, Q was... <laughs> I love how energetic Worf is. It's, yes. it's, it's, it shows how impractical that sort of thing around the <laughs> the bridge is that you have to really take the long road round to get to the front of the uh, really, yeah. bridge there. <laughs> it's good for showing off, though, if you can jump yeah. over. Yes, it is. <laughs> this is one of those things that comes up a few times in, in Star Trek is that uh, Q could appear as anything. And he could appear as any person, any gender, but he chooses to appear as John Delancey because it just is most aesthetically pleasing. I imagine with the new season of Picard, they'll probably justify his aging as being like, well, Picard, you've aged too, so I guess I better age myself. <laughs> yes. Has he, though? Has Patrick Stewart aged? That's the thing. <laughs> yeah. I, always, I always wonder, like... He's immortal. <laughs> yeah. I think he is. I think he has a portrait in the <laughs> attic somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um. So Jonathan, I'm curious, to do these uh, first short stories, you chose Q as the subject. Why, why was that? Uh, well, we, we, <laughs> we had a long list of ideas and characters. And I mean, Q started off um, as a character. His character really started off next generation and it was the, the an antagonist in those early days of next generation in that first episode. So... So we thought, yeah, well, let's bring him back. And we we kind of wondered, one of the things we did wonder is, like, you know, the Q continuum is obviously an immortal continuum. They've been around forever, and but why had we never seen them before? So um, we we sort of got some stories. Obviously, your story with Picard, and then we, we had him meeting Kirk. But then, of course, you've got all sorts of continuity... Uh, hoops to jump through to uh, fix that, which I think we've we kind of got away with it. Yeah, hopefully. Mm -hmm. <laughs> They're good stories, though. So, um, 
so yeah, that that was the thinking. It, it was just to to put in a really cool protagonist in the first uh, bunch of stories, um, and then then go from there, and hopefully have some some cool stories to come. Maybe Q will be back. Maybe there'll be some other characters. We'll see. Um, uh, it is one of my favorite. Uh... I guess you'd call it an Elseworld novel or something like that. But um, uh, Peter David wrote a, a novel called Q Squared, which postulates that Q is basically just hopping around various dimensions and fucking with the Enterprise <laughs> in each one. So, like, the reason why we don't see him as much in The Next Generation is because he's just off in another dimension that we're not in, just doing the same uh, things with other other versions of Picard. And, um, and I was like, that's oh, really, like really a cool idea. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I like it. I think this is a this is actually um you know see, season one i know doesn't have the best reputation uh in next gen but i think this is actually a really interesting episode and i think it's a really good riker episode um well of course because early on um gene roddenberry wanted it to be a two-hander of a show right he wanted it to be mm. the card and riker show and that was the the sort of like dualistic element of the captain right picard stays on the ship and does the high thinking and then riker does is the man of action and goes onto the planet and it's it's a little bit of a shame that and it's not a shame but it's it's an interesting idea but it's it's more of like a film idea right like if you try to turn that into a series it you know, you're going to have Patrick Stewart be like, why am I not doing anything? <laughs> and uh, so eventually I think they kind of smooth or move away from that notion a little bit. But. Uh, I mean, during this scene, uh, Patrick Stewart has a, a kind of quite a big previously on Star Trek exposition. Uh, a little bit, yeah. I mean, <laughs> I mean Lisa, Lisa, have you ever had to write anything like that? We've got kind of these characters know what happens, but they've still got to explain to the audience. And so are they Fortunately, I, I, I have not. I have not had to write an, as you know, speech, <laughs> uh, which I just, I hate as a viewer and uh, fortunately never had to deal with as a writer. <laughs> I, I did though on on our episode it was one of the uh, of, of Pandora it was one of the acts that I had to tackle it was like oh we, this whole scene just has to be like a refresh for the audience yeah. I was like wait a minute um, audiences as you can see here this episode uh, is credited to uh, C J Holland and Gene Roddenberry and C J Holland uh, if you're wondering does not exist. It's another of these situations where a writer on Star Trek had written the script. Gene Roddenberry came in and did a heavy re heavy pass on the script, which made uh, the original writer uh, very turbed and asked for his name to be changed and removed. Um, the original writer was Maurice Hurley. And uh, some of the bigger differences from his script to the final draft uh, was that he attempted to explain a bit more of who the Q were. And he established this notion of the Q were a small number of beings, but they were kind of the godlike beings for a planet. And they were just now exploring the rest of the cosmos. Um, in some ways connected, I think, to uh, at least a short story, right? Which involves a kind of a cult on a planet, which mm -hmm. uh, worships Q yeah. as a god. Um, it's a, a very enticing idea. And I think Roddenberry... Knowing Roddenberry, he probably amped up the sex aspect of it too. Who knows? But <laughs> <laughs> whatever he changed, he uh, definitely made um, Maurice Hurley angry enough to uh, opt out of the royalties for uh, the rest of his life. Wow. Uh, along with Dorothy Fontana wow. from the last episode that Jonathan was a guest on for The Naked Now. Um, so as you can wow. see, the writers weren't never too happy with Roddenberry. So this is the whole string of uh, 
podcast is the up, the upset writers uh, umbrella. <laughs> let's, let's start a spinoff. <laughs> um, I really I do like the um, the planet in this episode. It really does feel like a traditional original series Star Trek planet, where it you know it it's obviously it's you know budget at the time, no location filming, but it does feel very much studio set um you know but you know with interesting green sky and it's quite it's quite stagey but um yeah you know i think you know hey we we forgive it because it's uh that's kind of the precedent has been set by earlier star treks i guess and also we can establish that you know q has kind of created a set you know for our characters and so you know it's it's not meant to be a natural place mm. it's a fun idea yeah I, when I said in the intro how nostalgic, nostalgic this episode feels, it's like for me, I just remember watching it on syndication um, as a kid and it sticks out because it, you know, by season three, Star Trek production values just skyrocket, right? And suddenly it's yeah. it's a fantastic appearance. But this feels, as Jonathan says, very much like uh, uh, original series throwback. Because this, of course, is the planet hell set, which they reutilize um, four or five times in season one. Yeah. It, it really makes you want a glass of lemonade this sequence as well. <laughs> kind of getting thirsty. <laughs> I love Q's line right here. He's just like, eh, whatever. <laughs> there, there they go. Here's some drinks for you. Go just yeah. talk up. <laughs> I wanted Data to say like, this is oil or some, some joke about it being like motor oil or something. <laughs> so I think Worf is the sensible one here. I mean, would you drink something that Q gave you? Yeah. I'd almost postulate this was the first appearance of blood blood wine in Star Trek because that's a dark colored uh, wine that uh, Worf has there, but um, maybe not. <laughs> in terms of canon, it doesn't actually come in until season three. Okay. Lisa, I mean, you, you worked, uh, maybe not directly, but you worked with Jonathan Lancey for when you were on Voyager, right? I mean, yeah, there's two episodes during your time on Voyager, which featured Q. Um, do you yes. recall like what uh, began that sort of discussion? Like, let's bring Q over. Uh, well, it came down from from above, you know, from like, I believe Rick Berman and, and Jerry Taylor. Um, I'm sure that they've been trying to get John Delancey, you know, to commit to an episode for a long time, because of course, if you have Q, you know, I've not used him. So um, I guess this was just when when he was available. And so they told us, come up with a Q episode. Familiar settings, that sort of it's amazing. This isn't that familiar to me. Data. And Voyager did some good stuff with it too. I, I enjoyed those episodes a lot. But there's something about the Q and Picard dynamic, which is um, yeah, there is. so unique. And you could arguably say this is Q almost being like, no, I, I, really, I, don't, I don't like you. He's trying to play hard to get, but Picard's just not having any of it. He's just like, no, I don't like <laughs> you. I'm going to deal with your best friend instead. But, yeah. um, but instead, yeah, it doesn't quite work. He can't help but just go back to Picard, which we'll see here in a few minutes. Mm-hmm. Jonathan, I have to imagine this was one of your uh, VHS collections back in the day. Yeah, I can't remember what what which which episode this was paired with. So it would was a one a, a kind of a long, um, you know, a, a sort of long sort of weirdly glued to the other episode. But uh, yeah, I remember, I remember going to the video store and uh, renting it out. It's quite interesting that there's the implication. Um, in this towards earlier in the sequence that you know Q's saying oh uh, 
the queue are, are sort of interested in where the human race are going and that human race seem to be I guess there's an implication that they're evolving and the human race will become godlike at some point, which yeah. is um, kind of something I don't think they ever really explore again. But um, yeah, it's. Uh, well, it goes back to even like the Metrons in uh, the original series. There's this implication that humanity will get there in like thousands of years. So it's a little hard to really like push any further unless you kind of went into the dynamic of like why the Q in particular are interested in us and like play up some power dynamic within the the race itself but like you know some people are like nah fuck those humans let's just get rid of them. others <laughs> are like no, no, let's let's try to understand them more but it's something that comes up in a few other episodes of star trek too which is this notion that uh humanity is distinct from other races right uh, lisa and i had uh andre bermanis on uh last week to talk about um an episode of enterprise that he did and in that same episode there's this conversation uh, amongst the Vulcans and the Vulcans are like, yeah, humanity, uh, humans are just so unpredictable. Like we just can't put our finger on them. Like, like they, they'll act like Klingons one minute, they'll act like Vulcans the next. It's, it's bizarre. <laughs> I like the implication also that the Q used to be more human-like, yeah. um, mm. you know, to, to say that maybe they're sort of looking at their own development by looking at humans. I can't even make a log entry. Mm. I wish I could help you, Captain. It always struck me as so weird how calm Tasha is in this scene. Like it's almost like she's lived like a year and a half in this penalty box already, and she's just already beaten down. Well, I because uh, uh, she's just like, yeah, if I move, I die, <laughs> and I'm not going to fight anymore, despite the fact that she should arguably be fighting quite a bit. I really like this though, because the, there's the real sense of jeopardy that the the. You know the away team on the planet. Like if they make a mistake, she's gone. Yeah. Right. Um, I think that really adds a sort of oh my. You know, you really want to see what's going to happen next. And you know, it's interesting. Her her vulnerability comes from just sheer frustration. You know, and it it's a nice. I like the yeah. way she she sort of knocks his hand away from her yeah. shoulder. Yeah. It's a you know it's a. I, just, um, I don't know what's happening with her makeup right here, though. It's like around her eyes, it's yeah, so it, gray, and like, and then <laughs> everywhere I'm not sure else. It was ever so like colorful. that in the days before HD, but yeah. uh, <laughs> but um, but yeah, it's a nice moment, nice hu human moment, humanizing moment, I guess, for Picard as well. Although I'm not quite sure, is she coming on to him? She is absolutely coming on to him. Here. Yeah, <laughs> it's yeah. Is so weird. I mean, <laughs> it's, uh, it's out of nowhere, I, and it's uh, it's kind of. Uh, it's a Gene Roddenberry script, though. Yes, I suspect that was him, not the Morris Hurley. <laughs> and just as it's getting hot and heavy, Q shows up to throw a wet blanket on the whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a nice Picard moment, but I'm not crazy about uh, Tasha starting to cry out of frustration. Uh, that feels a little much. It's it's one of the tragedies that they never. And I feel the same way about Deanna Troy and, and Beverly Crusher, but like they, their first role is, I think, to be a sex object. And then their second role is whatever they're actually supposed to be doing. So it's easy to see how like Worf kind of becomes out as front and center because even in this episode, he's just kind of the more interesting security guard. And, mm -hmm. and Tasha's just kind of like not doing much. And, um, he's, are you saying that Wolf isn't a sex object? <laughs> He's a very good-looking fellow. Let's let's. Be <laughs> Whether the first officer is worthy of the greatest gift the Q can offer. 
Picard is again like Picard is very smug about his ability to over uh, overcome Q, and here he's uh it's 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 a, I don't think it was an intentional arc, but it's a really nice arc when you compare like Encounter at Farpoint to uh, All Good Things, right? Which is uh, Picard kind of learns humility and and learns uh, to kind of doubt himself and the world around him in a way that he didn't in the first episode. You know, in the first episode he's like, "Oh no, we're gonna beat you, no problem." And then in the final episode of the series, he's like, I, "I'm not sure. I, I don't know." And that's that's lovely. Yeah, that, that is something that, that Q is uniquely able to do with Picard, who seems very confident about every other challenge. But when faced with Q, it really kind of brings his vulnerability forward. The moment their audience was where Data was shocked, shocked that Worf had already made it to the third ridge in this uh, set, which we're not even sure if there is ridges, but uh, whatever. Use your imagination there, Peter. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Initially, uh, you know, it's, it's a question of like, why is Jordy special? And the initial idea was that Jordy's visor allowed him to see in um, objective ways that could transcend the human uh, experience, even beyond data's, right? Mm -hmm. Which makes you scratch your head because it's like, well, but wait, data's a android. He should be able to do whatever he wants to. But um, and so they do, I think, kind of move away from that. But uh, throughout at least the first half of the first season, Jordy is Jordy's eyesight is seen as as uh, better than humanity's, which is, um, I think, a really interesting uh, storyline. Mm -hmm. um, and especially given that, you know, it's a it's a very positive portrayal of disability, which um, sadly we we don't see uh, currently. Frankly, I, you know, I don't think Star Trek is really tackling these sort of issues in this sort of positive way, from my point of view. <laughs> yeah. It's funny, too, when you look at this episode and a lot of the episodes in season one, there's not a lot of, you know, uh, money spent, right? Like what, what, what we were talking about with the naked now. Uh, a few months ago, it was like it's kind of a bottle show, and this is another one where it's it's a lot of ship stuff. It's a lot of like our main crew, and mm -hmm. then you got the planet hell set, um, and then there's like one additional set that's meant to be this like destroyed planet, but it's kind of a small set, and they shoot it in a way to make it look big, but it is still um, yeah uh, pretty pretty intimate. And it it doesn't feel like there's you know, so you have shows where there's lots of bottle shows and then all of a sudden there's like an episode, oh, that's where they spent the budget. But there isn't really <laughs> yeah. that with this. But I suppose it's the cost of getting the show up and running and the, you know, the visual effects of and the title sequence alone, you know, are, are really groundbreaking actually. Um, yeah, it was. Mm -hmm. Very much so. They definitely had a massive pre-production time on this show. Um, but uh, that said, the budget for season one wasn't wasn't super high. Like once they actually got it off and running, um, they weren't sure if it would be very successful. So they kind of uh, wanted to, didn't want to put a lot of money into it. Yeah. Um, and so it really wasn't until they started seeing the receipts from season, from Encounter at Farpoint where they like, oh, we have something here and yeah. let's go with it, you know. Got the classic Riker stance here. <laughs> his back is very straight in this episode it's a little too straight so do we know anything more about the um alien species that they're fighting yeah or is, is it kind of just a one-off 
creeps them off at the moment. Um, I think so. Creepy up, creepy uh, design though, for sure. Um, Drop your weapons! <laughs> <laughs> Poor wolf. You came out of nowhere, wolf, but he's also pointing his phaser <laughs> in the opposite direction. <laughs> A warrior's reaction. Report. What did you find? Sir, what they're wearing may be old Earth uniforms, but what's inside of them isn't human at all. Vicious animal things. There you go. Yes. Technical term. Technical term. <laughs> Those soldiers are moving in fast, sir. Data. If you've got a I like that. That's a good reveal. Yeah, that's very, that's yeah, really a good creepy. reveal. It's creepy. Really creepy, isn't yeah. that? And Delancey knows he's going to be creepy, and he's he's leaning into it. I love it. I also love how, like, the cheat that, you know, like, the Q is, like, giving these alien creatures the advantage and, like, the advantages their muskets just fire phasers. <laughs> it's like, that's it. <laughs> and it's, uh, you'd, you'd expect maybe a little little more uh, in that direction. But I guess maybe, too, it's just because they keep coming. There's no, there's no end in sight. Yeah. It is a really interesting philosophical conundrum that we're leaning into here. It's like, if you have unlimited power... Um, what would you do with it? And you could do anything. You know, it's the what I love about the character of Superman, for example, is like he could be a totalitarian dictator yeah. and just rule the world as he sees fit, right? And it, it, there's a case to be made for that because as some people like to think, Superman knows what's right at all times. So as such, he would be able to rule and, and do the right thing every step of the way. But then the other mm -hmm. step of the way is like, but no, if you have so much power, you won't know how to use it in a way that benefits the, the world in the best ways, right? And eventually, uh, what you think you're doing is for a good cause will be will start uh, uh, having negative consequences. And I think this episode is a great examination of that idea too. If like if you have a member of Starfleet who gets godlike powers, there's no way they're not going to use it in a way that uh, will eventually be uh, uh, have negative consequences. Yeah, and that's something that Riker has to come to the realization, you know, that that nobody could handle having, you know, infinite power. Captain, you'd better look at this. Yeah. There's been no interruption. In With infinite power comes infinite responsibility. <laughs> Essentially. <laughs> and, uh, um, absolute power corrupts absolutely. Yeah. Huh. And this is quintessential Star Trek to me. It's like. This yeah. is the sort of stuff they should be dealing with every episode. And uh, um, yeah. it's a shame they don't always do that anymore. These animal things. No, it, it really provokes debate, the whole thing. And it, it's, that's, as you say, that's quintessential Star Trek. It's like, you know, what, what would you do in that situation? What's the, the right choice to make? Mm -hmm. Um you know, Picard has a point. Riker has a point, really. Yeah. And it's some. Commander Riker is probably perfectly safe, at least in a physical. Sense. And I mean, Lisa, you talked about how you watched the Next Generation in college with a bunch of friends. I imagine there was nothing but these conversations afterwards. And that oh yes, we, we all got very philosophical. But yeah, that that is when Star Trek is firing all cylinders when it when it provokes conversation. Yeah, absolutely. And that's why I kind of miss these uh, single episode storylines, which is like it allows for um, 
condensed, uh, concentrated. You know, the serialized nature of television today doesn't quite allow for this, right? It's like you can have a season arc that deals with this idea, but that and that's the only idea, and and that's um, uh, one conversation. <laughs> yeah. From one who has been granted a gift. This is also an episode that had a big remaster for the Blu-ray release. So uh, the dual planets you see back there um, were not in the original episode. Um, and this green sky skyline was a very different color as well. They kind of did a added a few uh, touches um, to kind of make the world seem less like a set. Send yourself back to the ship, or to Earth, or change your shape and become anything you want to be. What do you need, Q? Need? You want something from us desperately? What is it? Want something from you, foolish, fragile non-entities? Oh, it's, it's very pat, you know. Star Trek is obviously a science fiction show and we all love the space battles and things exploding and the special effects and all, all the action stuff but it's I, I would argue it's never better when there are two characters talking and you know the, the dialogue you know when it really sings it's it's so compelling Absolutely. yeah especially when you get good actors saying it and kind of sparring against each other the cue continues which means exactly what. And again, it's so interesting that at the time, none of these actors were particularly well known, right? No. LeVar Burton was mm -hmm. known for Roots. Um, uh, uh, Will Whedon was known for his role in Stand By Me. But beyond that, I mean, uh, John Delancey had done, you know, a lot of theater, um, a lot of uh, uh, one-off performances. Uh, he had a recurring role in a soap opera, which is how he got the role on Star Trek was uh, Leonard Mazelis, who was Gene Roddenberry's lawyer and who kind of, took control of his estate slash creative output in his later years. He was kind of a bad person. Um, but he, uh, he had had like a triple bypass surgery at one point, and this was one of those LA hospitals that had a TV set up even back then. And, and he spent most of his days watching John Delancey on some soap opera. And he, it kind of uh, uh, helped to uh, see him through that, that period. And so he was committed to getting uh, John Delancey a role on Star Trek. For us, it is a power which will grow strong. Why a lawyer was involved with casting, I don't know, but, um, <laughs> but uh, that's the way it was. And and then you got uh, Jonathan Frakes here, who had done character roles. You know, he'd been mm -hmm. uh, small roles. I remember seeing him in Matlock a few times, um, but uh, nothing super big. And and then they're starring on this TV show. Of course, Patrick Stewart was best known for Life Force. <laughs> the greatest science fiction movie of all time. Yes, I know it well. well it still is for some people, yeah. <laughs> love that movie. I don't, I don't care what people say. Yes, I know. I don't think it's a healthy love either, Peter. <laughs> Most love is not a healthy love, yeah. Jonathan, but we do. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, here's Wesley. Yeah, again, it's odd that Wesley's here. It's odd, to, you know, but... Uh, Beverly's not right, like, and it's it's there just so um, Wesley can get killed here, and Riker is forced to kind of pull out his uh, his godlike powers. Yeah, Commander Riker, what's going on? I was sitting in school and Worf, my phaser's gone. Are you armed? Yes, this sequence was quite very heavily cut on uh, initial broadcast on uh, British television. We we. We heard rumors at the time that you saw the um, the blade go right through Wesley's chest, but oh, uh, wow. but yeah, look, but they yeah they cut that 
here and you just kind of you saw it being attacked from behind and that was it so it's always so interesting British censorship uh, it, it never <laughs> makes sense to me like <laughs> oh. it's a good close up but no it's like some, t- like some of the most the least censorship I've ever seen in movies comes out of Great Britain and yet then I keep hearing about stuff like this where it's just like oh yeah they have to cut this part right here just for uh, to protect the delicate eyes <laughs> Well, it's kind of a, yeah. It was on at like six, six o'clock in the evening, I think, and uh, yeah, nobody wants to see Will Wheaton being <laughs> killed. At well, sadly, some people really do. <laughs> I was gonna say. <laughs> well, yeah, maybe so. <laughs> I've, I've always been very pro Wesley. I, uh, I always <laughs> loved him a lot, but maybe it's a generational thing. Like Jonathan, did you ever? Uh, noticeably hate Wesley growing up or uh, I always loved him and I think maybe because uh, I could identify with him in these sort of episodes like he was kind of more I I think the thing is with with any of these things it's like people that watch the Clone Wars that originally um, oh Ahsoka Tano oh I I don't like that character it's like yeah but you you realize characters grow over the course and change over the course of of uh, a series or over a narrative they have character arcs you know a character might you might not like a character at the start. Maybe you're not supposed to, but maybe you warm to them over the course of the the show. It's um, it's I, I never quite understood people that just want to like everything. Um, I just noticed that Riker sat down on his chair in the wrong way. Normally, he, <laughs> he does a weird uh, kick over the chair. And yep, disappointing. <laughs> I think at this point he was uh, still trying to hide his back injury because um, he. Had, uh, <laughs> oh, is that the I mean. Reason? Yeah, like a cor- at least according to him, his reason for that was always, and even like standing, kind of with his leg up on the on the console and the bridge, was yeah. because like when he was younger, he he earned a living by moving furniture in New York, and he kind of like twisted his back one too many mm. times, and so he just found it hard to kind of bend, <laughs> and uh, so uh, that's kind of why he he would do that that move, which um, allowed for a straight back to be maintained. Wow, he just became iconic. That's uh. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> this is one of those scenes where when you really think about it they are sitting very close to each other yes they, yes they are <laughs> they, uh, they had to do that for uh, 133 aspect ratio televisions I think one of my favorite times of seeing that was uh, in Voyager actually there was a scene with Janeway and Tuvok and they were like at a desk but they're like their arms are literally crossing as they're reading like data pads because it's yes because they just had to get them both in the shot. And it's like, no one would sit like that. <laughs> like, <laughs> uh. Well, on the podcast, The Delta Flyers, uh, Garrett Wong and Robert Duncan McNeil talk about that a lot uh, with Voyager. You know, they'll point out, you know, here we are about two inches from each other, and here we are behaving in a really unnatural manner. And uh, just talking about how the directors, you know, would, would stage them so it looked good on camera, even if, you know, people would never actually stand like that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's just us. sets are reused a number of times. I was trying to remember, I think this was also used, uh, there was a brief flashback to Tasha as a, as a young uh, child on her, I think they described it as a rape planet, but, um, oh, but uh, I think this is this set was reused for that. You're getting close, Dad.
too late. And now the temptation. Yes. Yeah, it's quite, I mean, it's quite hard hitting, isn't it, really, to have a the death of a child as a story point here. It's, yeah. I think Beverly but I guess it needs to be to make it really much. It, it has to be. I mean, you want to put your characters in the most difficult yeah. possible situations. I mean, as soon as you hear Riker promise Picard, I promise I won't use those powers. You know that he's got to be tested in some extreme way. Yeah. That's why I always hate the argument about like Batman doesn't kill. And it's like, but, you know, he's there to um, to be like the, the whole concept of him not killing is a rule that you need to test. And so that's what makes it compelling. Otherwise, it's just like, yeah, you know, cool rules. Rules. <laughs> when you grow to like it too much. It's amazing, really, given, obviously, Patrick Stewart, a Shakespearean actor and kind of serious thespian. I mean, he was in Life Force. What, what <laughs> other credentials do you need? Yeah. Uh, you know, and, and Jonathan Frakes, as, as you say, at this time, had, had sort of done relatively little. But I think Jonathan Frakes is really good in these scenes with Patrick Stewart. You know, they're, they're, he's really meaty. There isn't a sense of oh, wow, this guy's played Hamlet versus this guy's a dog food commercial and a soap opera. <laughs> you know, there's a real, um, you know, I, I think really, he's really good in this. There's yeah. a, you know, there's a sense that like no one is uh, shy around each other. And I, I do agree with you. That's fantastic. There's a, even though like you hear stories about how Patrick Stewart was difficult in season one, it's like you kind of, uh, you get the sense that they're having fun when the camera's cut, you know. Wesley, this meeting is not for you. Why not, sir? And here's where you really miss Troy as well. And if they're calling the entire bridge staff together. You do. It's interesting. Even in the, the final shooting draft, though, she doesn't have a temptation here, right? So it's it's easy to see why she was cut just because she only has like three lines of dialogue in the entire script. So she would have just kind of been there um but she has missed and i think you could have they could have played an element where her temptation quote unquote is to uh to have you know they could have hinted at riker's romance a little bit here yeah <laughs> yeah and like oh you like me well here's oh. a version of me for you <laughs> 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 or unlimited chocolate there you go <laughs> yes <laughs> Well, my understanding when I was working on Voyager was that if an actor was not in an episode, then they wouldn't get residuals from that episode. Oh, really? And so if you didn't actually include everybody, even just giving them a line, you were actually costing them money. Wow. Um, and so mm. uh, our, our, my, my, the way I remember it is that we would you know, give a character a line, even if they didn't otherwise belong in that episode very much, just to make sure that they got residuals. That's so interesting. I, my, at first I was thinking like, well, maybe they cut her because then she wouldn't have to get paid. But then I remember like, but no, if you're credited as the main cast, you're paid no matter what. Yes. And so it's irrelevant. So I'm like, so why isn't she here? I don't know. But, but that's really interesting. Maybe that was that. They just wanted to save that little bit of residual money. I don't know. I wonder if any other... I'm trying to cast my mind across the season. Were there any other actors uh, missing from any episodes? I don't think so. 
Well, I mean, Tasha goes away in a few episodes, but <laughs> we don't we yes. don't like to talk about that. <laughs> no, it's it's too too, too soon. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, but it is again that Marina Sirtis, uh not in uh, three episodes from season one, so they they do keep uh, getting rid of her. <laughs> I just love how shocked everyone is there. So. There's no religion, but if Q puts on a monk's robes, holy fuck! Yep. <laughs> How dare you? <laughs> John Delancey also looks good in whatever he's wearing. You know, he, it's true. he looks really good in that monk's outfit. You know, he looks good in some of the more ridiculous outfits he wears in the show. And uh, he never yeah, looks um, uh, shy or like over the top. You know, like. Mm-hmm. There's moments, yeah. I just, because we're recording this a few days after Christmas, I rewatched The Christmas Story recently, which is a fantastic movie. But there's a few scenes where the mother character has to put on like a Joker outfit for, not not the Joker, but like a Joker from uh, medieval yeah. times um, uh, outfit for like uh, Ralphie's uh, imagination moments. And you can just see the actress being like, I look ridiculous and I know it. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I don't like that. Um, <laughs> But John Delancey never has that look. He's always just like, this is awesome. I am here for it, and I'm going to play it. Oh, yeah, he commits. Each one of your people demonstrated. You have the power to leave each one of them with a gift proving your affection. There'd be no harm. It's such a fascinating act structure here, too, because it's um, each act, you kind of have Riker's... Uh, it, it, each act is very segmented in terms of its temptations. It's, it's very it's structured almost like a movie, right? Rather than a TV show. Cause like here, this act is all about like, let's tempt the crew and we'll, we'll do this, this act. And then that'll be it. The last act was all about like, we're on this planet and there's a, some dead people and there's that. And it's, um, it's very kind of sectioned off in that way. Mm-hmm. Are you certain, sir? Quite certain data. By all means, demonstrate your gifts of affection. And I imagine uh, Data leaning over and saying, are you sure, sir? Sounds very much like a Troy line that was reassigned. Yes, absolutely. Hmm. Shall I guess your dreams? Leave now, Wesley. I do love uh, Beverly's motherly affection here. She's just like, no, I know, I know this is a bad idea. And we are uh, leaving now. Your favorite wish, my young friend. <laughs> You're ten years older, a man. See, I'm not convinced. I mean, obviously, we know what Will Wheaton looks like now as he's grown older, but yeah. I'm not convinced that guy was ever convincing as an older no. Wesley. Yeah, that, guy really. there, that guy there is uh, named William Wallace. Um, for some reason. And uh, he did a few other roles in Hollywood. He somehow funded like a movie that had some pretty big names in it. It's kind of meant to be like a 90s noir film. Um, but he kind of faded away from Hollywood. So I have to imagine he just probably a Beverly Hills type came for money and could uh, dabbled in acting for a little bit. I thought about trying to get him on this episode, but I was like, yeah, eh, it's, it's too much work. <laughs> 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 I'm sure he'd be available. Probably. I'd be thrilled Probably. to talk about it. It's funny how they actually loop uh, uh, Wesley, the older Wesley's dialogue with Will Wheaton. So it's um, it's not even this actor's voice, but it's someone else's. Wow. Or it's, it's uh, Will Wheaton's voice. You know what, though? I, it's, I, 
I, I was just going to say it's it's um, sorry no this is a, a great moment his, yeah his reaction Beautiful. to Tasha is um... it's the first time in the series we see LeVar Burton's uh, realize that usually yeah. they have uh, contact lenses and to make him look blind um, and it's a shame like there was talk about doing more with his blindness in terms of like trying to cure it trying to move past you know having that be a whole storyline um, but they never quite go there. And so it's always just these sort of fragmented moments throughout the series where they actually do talk about um, Jordy's blindness in a way. I think the last time is probably in uh, Insurrection, right? Where they have mm-hmm. the moment where Jordy uh, goes to the planet just to uh, get his eyes regenerated for a little while. I have to say, I never quite believed that they could not cure blindness in the future. Yeah. You know, that as soon as a child was born blind, they couldn't, you know, resequence his genes or something like that to to make him not blind. That always seemed a, a, a little bit of a stretch. Well, maybe he was allergic to uh, Ritalin. Like Kurt. <laughs> <It> must be. <laughs> Just whatever. Some, some, some reasons. Some reasons. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. That and, that and growing hair, I think, is the... Is yes, exactly. Baldness would be the other... <laughs> I think it, it just occurred to me, of course, the last, the literally the last line of encounter at Farpoint is, you know, I think we'll have a fine crew if we can resist temptation. Yeah. Um, which I wonder if they had this episode in mind. I mm. bet they did, especially this moment. <laughs> 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 yes, this is quite the moment. <laughs> it is indeed. I think it's the first, it's definitely the first uh female clean on and this moment right here too was meant to be troy it wasn't meant to be tasha it was meant to be troy that uh, uh this uh female clean on was uh attacking yeah i can see that um oddly enough that would have actually set up the romance of wharf and troy that goes on in uh season seven but mm-hmm. i love the wharf lines here too it's like this is sex is <laughs> 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 that even me it's <laughs> She's from a world now alien to me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes. <it's... laughs> but I have no place for it in my life now. Uh, poor Worf gets made fun of so much. <laughs> he does. I think he growls more in this episode than uh, any other. See, does indeed. <laughs> because your mother objects. No. I just want to get there on my own. Honest. But it's easier, boy. Listen to right I like to accuse saying, you know, this is so much easier because that's that's kind of a, a philosophy for him is, you know, whatever's easiest and doesn't quite understand, you know, the human need to, to earn something. Yeah. Quite right. So you should. Which is that big conundrum that people have with... <laughs> I love how Picard's just like you're, 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 you have no power left, and he takes off the hood as a way to show it. Yes. <laughs> um, I suppose this is the first instance of the Q continuum being shown in this, um, uh, in terms of other Q being involved. You know, mm-hmm. he's been punished. Mm. Away with you. <laughs> Yet yeah, the idea that there are beings that are even more powerful than Q himself, you know, yeah. that's kind of interesting. Yeah. Corbin Bernstein comes in later. 
Captain. We are showing that same hole in time again. Our instruments say we've just now been back from our rescue mission. This is an interesting idea at the end here, which is like, we as people then and now would think that time and space is a very difficult thing to handle, and yet Picard's posits like, well, maybe for the Q, uh, the human equation is the hardest part. And yeah. That's an interesting idea. No coordinates laid in, number one. Yes, sir. You have my coordinates report. This episode was directed by Cliff Boole, who also directed the pilot. Um, so in a way, this is a reteaming of the... And I wouldn't say a remake, but it is kind of like, yeah. uh, let's let's uh, let's do the Q story from Encounter Farpoint again. Yeah. Um, which I suppose was great for uh, John Delancey to know that... Uh, have a familiar, uh, you know, uh, working environment from the pilot. Yeah, certainly. But anyway, so there's the end of the episode. Um Thanks so much for being here with us, listeners. Uh, Jonathan, how's the magazine coming? What's uh, what's new and exciting coming up for you guys? Well, we're, we're frantically working on issue two. We've, um, I say frantically, like I really do mean frantically working on it. Um, we've got some cool stuff coming up um, over the course of the next few issues. Uh, more fiction. Um some cool stories hope hopefully we've got some more stories from lisa coming up if we can hey, yeah. if i can get myself sorted out and uh, commissioning properly <laughs> but um but yeah we, we'll go from strength to strength it's always interesting to hear what people think and what they like what they don't like we always want to please our audience um but yeah we're we're, we're having a blast doing it and I ho hopefully it's going down quite well with the star trek fan community as well Oh, and, and listeners out there, again, that's the Star Trek Explorer magazine. Um, you can subscribe to it now. It's a fantastic magazine. And issue number one does include a short story by Lisa Glink herself. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, everyone out there, um, guys, do you have any final thoughts on Hide and Q? No? Well, I'll say it. It was a fantastic episode. <laughs> I, I, uh, I really enjoyed it. I remember fondly watching this episode on uh, on TV back in the day, and it still brings up those those memories of uh, syndication at uh, 7 o'clock, Channel 12. This is where I watch Star Trek. Um, so, uh, everyone out there, we definitely want to say thank you guys for being here with us. We want to thank our sound engineer, Mark Rivera, as well as his uh, mentor, Bill Ritter, and everyone at Electric Entertainment, including uh, Mark A. Altman and Dean Devlin, and of course, producer Natalie Miscali. Um, Jonathan, do you want to uh, throw out some websites for people to reach out to you or to subscribe to uh, Star Trek Explorer? Oh, of course. Um, so uh, check out Star Trek Explorer on uh, titan-comics.com uh, where you can, ex uh, you can, what's the word I'm looking for? Subscribe, that's it. You can subscribe. Uh, and if you subscribe, you not only get the magazine delivered to your door, um, you also get an exclusive digital supplement, which has got an additional two short stories. Oh, and wow. um, some fun interactive downloads and things. So uh, it's um, it's well well worth doing if you love Star Trek, which you surely do. That's awesome. So and was that included in the first issue as well? So that would bring the total number of short stories up so, from yeah. two to four listeners out there. Yes, that's four. the reason I sound and look so exhausted <laughs> <laughs> editing these. Although, um, although to be fair, you know, obviously with uh, writers like Lisa, there is very little editing to do. 
Um, it all comes fully formed and is uh, fantastic stuff to read. It's a great pleasure when uh, stories like that come through, uh, emailed through. So uh, and I hope uh, I hope our readers feel the same way. That's awesome. Uh, and uh, listeners, again, if you want to read not two but four short stories involving Q, one of them being from Lisa Klink, check out Star Trek Explorer magazine. Um, and for us, if you'd like to reach out, you can get in touch with us at uh, Inglorious Trek on Twitter and Inglorious Trek Experts on Facebook or Instagram. Um, so for Lisa Klink and myself, we will say thank you very much for being here. And the briefing room is now closed. <laughs> Scott, what do you repeat what you just told us? About an hour ago, the bridge control started going crazy. Levers shifting by themselves, buttons being pushed, instrument readings changing. And on my monitor screen, I can see Mitchell smiling each time it happened. As if his ship and crew were almost a toy for his amusement. This show was produced by Dean Devlin and Mark A. Altman and is an Electric Surge Network production.